You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Well, friends, let's get right to our guest. I am really excited today to be hosting Jeff Goins. Uh, Jeff um, probably didn't know this, but he's been a huge benefit to me as I've put this podcast out and as I wrote my book. Um, Not only is he himself a a creative, he's an artist, but he also helps people who are trying to do creative work figure out how to do it in the public space. He's written books about it, his book, The Art of Work, and also uh, I love his book, Real Artists Don't Starve. Um, Both these books are evidence of Jeff's actual creative gift himself, but also really practical. I've got links in the show notes. But also Jeff offers a number of tools on his website, goinswriter.com, also linked in the show notes. A number of tools to help anybody who is doing their work in the public sphere. And I know as a pastor, and I know a lot of our listeners are, are faith leaders, it's pretty awkward to figure out how to put yourself out there without showboating or without drawing uh, um, unnecessary attention to yourself, and particularly in a market where so many people are doing it. Jeff, to me, is is really one of the leading voices on this, not just because of his experience and expertise, but I think as you'll pick up in this interview, because of his posture, uh, because of his thoughtfulness, uh, Jeff is wise. He's just gone through this. He has a real humility about him that I think is going to be evident in this uh, podcast. I, I just I really enjoyed this interview. So I began by asking Jeff just what it was like in the early days when he first started putting himself out there and what it was like to to face his vulnerability. And that's where we got going and, and you can listen in. So Jeff, you know, you, you've been at this, the professional writing for, by my count, almost a decade. I think it was 2011 when you really started hitting this professionally. I'd be interested in hearing from you in those early days uh, what it was like to deal with vulnerability because obviously you're an artist and your craft is public and so you're definitely putting yourself out there. Um, could you just tell us a bit about the early days of first putting yourself out there and what was going on in your head? Sure. So about a year ago, I was having breakfast with Stephen Pressfield, the author of The War of Art. Um, uh, in another life, he was a screenwriter, uh, best-selling novelist, wrote The Legend of Bagger Van, Skates of Fire. And um, he said, how long have you been doing this? I said, writing? He said, yeah. I said, well, you know, I, I, since the end of 2010. Um, and he goes, oh, so not long then. <laughs> And I said, well, I, I guess, I guess not. <laughs> now um, that you mentioned it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here's somebody who's been, who struggled with calling himself a writer and answering the calling of writer uh, for decades, for years, you know, um, most of his, you know, twenties, thirties, and even early forties were kind of him figure, figuring out what his path of life was going to look like. And The Legend of Bagger Vance didn't come out until uh, Steve was nearly 50, I believe. Uh, and now he's in the 70s. Um, so I I loved that perspective because um, I can look at this and go, hey, I've been doing this for 10 years. I know a thing or two. And, um, you know, those are the early days back in 2010, 2011, 2012. 
And according to Steve, I am still in those early days and I uh, gladly accept that, um, th that way of thinking about it because I think it's, it's helpful. Um, you know, it, back in the Renaissance, uh, an apprenticeship would take about 10 years, seven years of working in the shop with the master, two to three years of being a journeyman. And then you would, um, submit your work to the guild and they would tell you if it qualified or not as a masterpiece. And then you'd be accepted in the guild and become a master and you could take on apprentices. So I am just now, if we're following that system, getting to the point where I can actually practice this vocation as a legitimate profession. Um, anyway, uh, I, I just, I, I love that story because, um, uh, I, I like the idea of them just getting started. I hope that's true. You know, not, not that old yet. I'm 36 and I hope I have many decades of work, uh, to come. Um, but in, uh, you know, those early days, especially, um, 2011 was a, a big year for me where I just decided to start writing every day, no matter what I had tried to launch previous blogs in the past and they had all failed. And the, the thing that they all had in common was that I had quit them. Hmm. And so I, started this experiment with myself, which was, you know, what happens if I don't quit, quit this time, right? What if I just keep going? Uh, there wasn't a blog or writing project that I hadn't quit after six months. And so what if I just kept going at that six month hump? And so I started my latest blog that I have today with that intention that I will just, um, write every day for two years without fail and then see what happens. And uh, there was something fun about that shift in focus away from writing and seeing what would happen to like just writing a bunch of stuff. And the metric for success became showing up instead of just doing something in hope, you know, hoping that a million people read it or whatever. Um, and uh, I thought of it as practicing in public. I had read a blog post by Seth Godin once where he says, nobody gets talker's block. They get writer's block, but they don't get talker's block. And he said, you should write like you talk, which is to say, do it often and in public. So I thought, oh, practice in public. I like that. Uh, and so writing as a means of practicing in public, putting my work out there in front of other people, but really just doing it for me, um, but but putting myself out there in a way that if somebody wanted to notice this, they they could. Um, it was the perfect blend of me showing up, not being able to hide, because if you're doing it in public, you can't hide, uh, and and then doing it without expectation of any results, trusting that whatever happened uh, would happen. And it was a very freeing place to be. In some ways, I I miss that time because I could do anything, and I, and, and this could mm, be right anything. And, um, and, and there was something very pure about just doing it to see if, to see if I could do it, if I had what it took. I know in my own life when I, I've been in uh, vocational ministry for like 25 years, but I've, I've been a lead pastor for 14 and the first mm -hmm. two or three, even though I had preached before, I'd never preached every week. I'd never right. had to get up week after week. Right. And I, I really appreciate what you're saying about, um, putting yourself out there and not being able to hide. Um, how long did it take you to get used to feeling that exposed where, where you're okay with it? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I've ever been completely okay with it. Um, you know, it's funny. I think 
um, in terms of public facing vocations, like a, like a communication based job, seems to me that the, um, the hardest jobs would be uh, professional comedy just cause it's oh, man, you live yeah. or die by the moment Yeah, and, and probably preaching because it's, you know, uh, I, I do public speaking quite a bit, but I have like three speeches that I do over <laughs> and over and over again. And I don't do them every week. I, I, if I'm lucky, I do them twice a month, you know? Um, but every week, theoretically, you've got to have a new sermon, new stories, new, new illustrations, um, you know, some, some new passage of the Bible, maybe. Um, and uh, so I do think that requires a great deal of, of courage and, and a willingness to not hide pieces of yourself because it's so exposing. Um, but I talked to, I interviewed way back when, when I was just getting started as a writer, I was writing for magazines. I interviewed a, um, a reformed minister by the name of R.C. Sproul. And um, I asked him how he preached and, and he does all of his, he, he had done, he's, he's passed away now, mm, but yeah. um, he had done all of his preaching extemporaneously. And I asked him, I said, um, uh, or, do you ever get nervous? Because he was, he'd been doing it for, he'd been doing it since his 20s. So he'd been doing it for like, I don't know, 40 years at this point. And um, he said, I cannot remember a time when I was not nervous. And I thought, well, uh, I can think of a way where you can make those nerves go away. Maybe write out the speech ahead of time. Because um, he, he did it all extemporaneously. Yeah, like, that's oh. just my. I did. I had no idea he preached that way. That's a mind blowing. Yeah, yeah, concept. yeah. yeah. Um, but I cannot remember a time where where I wasn't nervous. I love the honesty of that. No, I um, I'm more nervous today than I was before. I think um, I, uh, greater stakes. You know, um, if I send the wrong email to hundreds of thousands of people. Um, that's, that's a, that's a bad thing. <clears throat> there's, there's a much greater consequence for failure now. Um, I do think there was a conditioning, you know, perhaps like an athlete, you realize that pain is not necessarily an enemy, right? Um, to the writer, fear is not necessarily an enemy. It's just part of the job. Hmm. Elizabeth Gilbert describes fear as like, the passenger that will accompany in you in every single road trip on every creative venture you take. Fear is, is somebody sitting in the passenger seat. And the best thing that you can do is acknowledge fear and go, hey, I see you there. I remember you. Uh, the fact that you're here tells me we're going someplace special. So you're welcome to stay, but you don't get to steer and you don't get to pick the music. Hmm. And, and I think that over time, I got used to the fact that every time I sit down to write something, create something, it was going to be a scary endeavor. And that fear started to comfort me because it was familiar. So I never got over it. I just got used to it. Hmm. Yeah. As I was hearing you talk as well, I, I really love the way you framed your intentional posture as a rookie or as an apprentice. You know, you mentioned the the guilds and yeah. what well, it, it triggered so many things for me. I, I'm a, um, I have a mild uh, obsession with acoustic guitars mm, and yeah. I've got a couple of guitars. My favorite one handcrafted by one man and his son from Northern Ireland named uh, Dermot uh, McElroy. And he exactly, as you mentioned, he apprenticed for 10 years with a 
more famous luthier before he began his own field. Um, what what it made me think of too, though, Jeff, was um, Ira Glass, the yeah. the host of uh, This American Life. He he talks about how we all get into our creative field because of our taste, but when we start producing creativity, our product um, does not match our taste. There's a big gap between yeah, right. our taste and our product. Uh, could you tell us a bit about that? What's that been like for you? Yeah, yeah, I, I love that story of the luthier. Um, uh, I think that we live in an age where everybody wants to be a master, but few people are willing to be apprentices first. And um, it's it's powerful when you um, are forced into some sort of vocation that requires that. You know, it, it teaches you something about life that uh, our culture. Uh, in Western society doesn't uh, necessarily uh, reinforce too much these days, which is that uh, life is hard and good things take time. Yeah. Uh, that, that is, um, that's just not a lesson that you have to learn um, immediately. I think life eventually wins out and teaches you that, but um, you know, there's just, there's so many uh, quote unquote quick fixes and shortcuts that, alleviate the um, the anxiety of, of that reality, which is that things are hard and things take time. And if you want to be really, really great at something, be patient. Mm. Um, but yeah, I love that uh, video series that um, uh, Ira Glass did. It's actually, people don't realize this, that's a very old series on YouTube. Yeah. I used to use it when I was training missionaries on how to tell their stories. It's a, it's a storytelling um uh, series and it got turned into some uh, you know cool video that somebody created with him narrating that particular part where he, he talks about what's been called the the taste talent gap. Mm. Um, but the whole series is like a, you know five part six parts series in storytelling, and he's just talking about how he got started um, as uh, you know in, in broadcast journalism at, at NPR. Um, yeah, I find that really comforting that you're or early on, your taste will exceed your talent. And that's a good thing. It means you have good taste. And if you find yourself doing work that you're not particularly proud of, be encouraged. You know, if, if you're the best writer that you know, uh, that's not very inspiring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. I, I, I jokingly told a friend recently, I said, you know, your problem is you're the most interesting person, you know? And she was like, that's true. I am. <laughs> Good. And, oh, and that's it was, amazing. And it was like a sad revelation. Like I need to, like if I am the one who inspires myself the most, I need greater inspirations, right? Well, that, that makes me want to ask you then, Jeff, because you are, uh, your reputation is as a first-class writer. And it's not surprising, the, the amount of sweat you've put in on a daily basis for years, right? Like you coach people on the habit. Um, I would love to hear then, what are you working on right now to improve your craft? Um, that's a good question. I... Um I'm in this funny season, I think, where I'm really trying to trust myself more. I'm trying to trust the work that I've done. I'm also trying to trust my intuition. And so that means, uh, and I, I hesitate to say these things because I don't want somebody to go like turn them into, um, you know, gospel truth for themselves, but this is uh, working quite well for me. Um, first of all, 
I got into this kind of game, just writing every single day, writing, just writing 500 words a day for years and years and years and years. And after a year of doing that, I got much better than I had ever been. And my friend, Michael Hyatt said to me, he goes, you're finding your voice. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, I am. Wow. That feels really good. I'm really excited. Um, so, you know, showing up, doing the work is a part of the creative uh, process. And early on, I did struggle with um, feeling like what I wanted to do and what I was capable of doing were so far apart. I still feel that way. There's still, I'm still chasing uh, horizon. The poet David White says in one of his poems, you know, that life is essentially about chasing a horizon, even if you never reach it. Um, that there's something um, powerful and spiritual about the process of creating anything where you are making something that you will never, never fully actualize in this life, perhaps. And that that's the point of art. The point of art is to actually point to something beyond itself, hmm. um, which is why you know somebody can look at a Van Gogh painting and get multiple, uh, you know, different people can get different sort of uh, perspectives and, and impressions of, of the work. For me uh, today, um, the best thing that I can do for my writing is to go for a walk, is to actually step away from the computer and get inspired. Anne Lamott says there's a difference between being blocked and feeling empty. And um, I have the capacity to sit down and write anything at any time. It's not, that's not a difficult difficulty for me. I always have something to say. I'm a big talker. Um, so I can sit down, open up a Word document, and start writing. Um, but there are these moments, these flashes of genius and insight. And when they come, I try to trust them. And um, for a long time, I didn't because that's not a very reliable uh, work schedule as a writer. To go, I write when I feel inspired. Yeah. Uh, what is, I think it's a Jack London quote. I only write when I feel inspired. And I happen to feel inspired, um, you know, maybe it's, I think it's Ray Bradbury, actually. Uh, Jack London says, you know, inspiration, you got to go knock it over the head and drag it home. Uh, <laughs> uh, Ray Bradbury says, I believe in inspiration. Uh, and I only write when I'm inspired. And I happen to be inspired every single morning at 9 a.m. Right. Um, so there's something to that. And I um, have a set writing time every single morning. But the best thing that I do for my work these days is get out into nature. Uh, I've been reading a lot of Emerson and Thoreau lately. And um, these men and, and women, the transcendentalists, um, that was really a rebirth of um, an ancient way of thinking and writing, of philosophy, art, um, literature, um, that was about you know the artist's connection with... Um, nature, Walt Whitman as well. And uh, I'm finding a lot of inspiration in, in solitude in nature. And I would, I would argue that in nature, I am far from alone. Um, mm, good, yeah. So there's something about it. There's something about me getting out of the office, going for a walk, getting out into the world. I'll, I'll walk for an hour or two uh, almost every morning. Um, uh, on days when it's it's warm, um, these, these days I you know I'm in Nashville and it's a little bit cold outside, and so I go oh, maybe tomorrow. Um, <laughs> but there is something incredibly invigorating about that practice, and I felt guilty about it 
for a while. I was like, well, I should just be in, I should just be in my chambers writing. And um, then I, I read this essay by Thoreau called Walking, where he's, he basically says, and he, he walked four to six hours a day. And he said, if you're not walking, you're not really living. He says, I can't imagine what it's like to be, you know, part of the dying populace that's stuck inside all day, just mm. sitting down, you know, hunched over their work. And so it, it took me a long time to realize, as an editor once told me, my friend Joel Miller, that sometimes not writing is writing. And um <laughs> I, 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 again, shudder to share this advice because somebody could misapply it. I think it's good to have discipline. I don't always get inspired, but when inspiration does strike me, uh, I don't deny it and I don't, um, I don't hide from it. Uh, I, I chase it down because it's rare and, and beautiful and good stuff comes from it. And those moments happen more often when I, um, I get away from my work and I go for a walk. I was watching, um, I think it was either an interview with you or I was watching a keynote you gave and, and you quoted Derek Sievers. You just said, what's obvious to you is amazing to someone else. Yeah. I think it'd be interesting both for our listeners to try to figure out what's obvious to them. But I think what would be helpful is to hear from you. What's, what's just one thing that you think is obvious that you have been surprised it amazes other people when you share it? Yeah. Well, I, I think the, the, hardest part of answering this question is you don't know, you know, it's like, you don't know what's obvious to you, which is ironic because it's obvious, but it's so obvious that you, you can't see it as something separate from your identity. Or and is that, so, is it because you assume that it's obvious to everyone? Kind of, but it's like, what am I good at? I don't know. Hmm. And then people say, you're good at this. And it's like, well, I don't, I mean, nah, not really. And they're hmm. like, no, 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 you're, that's so easy to you. And that's so difficult to me. Really? Oh, okay. Um, I think that um, solving problems is pretty easy to me. Uh, certain kinds of problems, I suppose. But I actually really thrive uh, on uh, emergencies. Hmm. It, it's it's where I do my best work, and um, I have a a bit of you know childhood trauma in my past. I hesitate to use that word because it means so many different things to different people. Um, you know, but there's, there's stuff, you know, down in that, that cellar. And, um, I think what that taught me to do conditioned me rather was, you know, stay in this state of low grade anxiety where, where anything can happen. And so you've got to be ready for anything, which I imagine you understand. Yeah. And, um, what I have done consciously more recently is use that to my advantage in a way where I'm not in that low-grade state of anxiety, but where I can kind of push a button and go, oh, we've got, 
we've got 30 days to write a book. Let's go, right? Let's, let's turn on the hyper-focus and then let's get rolling. And, and the shadow side of that for me is um, I can procrastinate. I mean, I, I do procrastinate, but I can wait until the last minute where it's emergency mode and now I have all this energy Yeah. instead of, you know, uh, taking the appropriate time to do the work. And so I've got to balance that. And I, I don't know that I've perfected that, but I'm at least aware of the fact that I do that. Uh, but um, I don't, I feel all the things that a person would feel, I think, um, when a deadline is approaching, when there's some big impossible project. Um, but I don't shut down. I get really excited. And so um, impossible things feel very exciting to me. And I, I'm often surprised by how discouraged people are by challenges. Um, like uh, I, I remember uh, an interview with Jim Henson where somebody said, um, did you ever imagine that you would have been this successful? And he said, of course I did. How else would I have done it? And he says, I know that I'm supposed to say no and pretend to be humble and like this was all a surprise, but the truth is I saw all of this very clearly and, yeah. I, and I accomplished it because I saw it and yeah. because I was focused on it. And, um, I, I don't want to say that success is easy, but I am often surprised by how daunted people feel about big goals. Um, when I have always felt very excited about them and there is a part of me that knew I was going to do all of this from the very beginning. And I of course doubted it and questioned it and was fearful of it. Um, but there's been very few things that have truly surprised me. Now, in the moment, I would have said, oh, gosh, look at this. Gee, Willikers, you know. Um, and it's great. And I'm incredibly grateful for it. I don't mean to sound arrogant or anything. But there is, I believe that there is um, a certain piece of the puzzle, uh, uh, you know, the formula of success that requires you, that requires intention, requires you to know what you're doing and how it's all going to work and, and all of that. And so... The things that seem obvious to me are, um, you know, you've got 12 seconds to do this. All right, great, let's go. You know, um, uh, I, I thrive in a state of, of emergency. The, the easiest time to do the work is at the last possible moment. I get most excited about and get most energy from that. And then uh, secondly, um, uh, it, it seems obvious to me that if you're um, in a state of struggle, like you should know what you need to do to get out of that struggle. And uh, I, I come from, you know, pretty lower middle-class family, didn't have much growing up. I paid for college with um, uh, scholarships and financial aid, um, worked in the summers to buy my books. My parents helped uh, a little bit as they could, but they couldn't afford to send us kids to college. And I never would have said we were poor. You know, that, that's a subjective thing. We got a new outfit for school every year, and that was our new clothes, and it was fun. But looking back, I realized, oh, well, um, you know, I, I took my son recently to the house I grew up in, which is like maybe a 1,000 square feet. Hmm. He was like, that's it? I was like, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's something about growing up of little means that, in the back of my mind at a very early age. And I don't think this was a healthy thought and I've become aware of it and kind of worked through some of it. 
But there was a voice that said, I am never going back to that. And, um, and so I don't understand when people settle for failure. Because for me, it's a, it's a dare. I, I have failed. I have fallen flat on my face. I'm not saying every, everything I touch turns to gold. Definitely not. But when I fail, I get angry. When I get angry, I get motivated to do something. And I sometimes, I mean, it's a, it's a challenge. I can lack empathy for a person who is so discouraged and defeated that they just want to give up because that's, that's not on my radar. It's not something that I can relate to. What I hear you saying is, is um, you know, with the Jim Henson example and your own life story, it's not arrogant. You're, you're just clear on your vision and you go after it. But the second thing I heard you say, Jeff, is you, it, you don't get stuck. You don't stay stuck. Like you put yourself out there and there's failure and unexpected issues and obstacles, but you keep, you're energized by plowing through them. Yeah, I am. I, I, I like figuring things out. It's, and I, I like solving other people's problems. And, uh, but, you know, in, in my twenties, I, I basically thought all of my friends had given me an open invitation to give them advice. Hey, I, I know what to do. <laughs> yeah. Great. <laughs> Nobody had ever at any point explicitly or implicitly given any kind of invitation whatsoever to that. Yeah. And I lost a few friends over that. You, know, yeah. you, know you should do blah, 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 blah. Um, and I think maybe that comes from being an older brother. I was the oldest of four kids. I am seven, 10 and 19 years older respectively than hmm. my three siblings. Um, yeah, but it's, it, I, I was the one who went out and did things. I was the first one to college. I had to succeed. I had to kind of go beyond w what my parents had done. I mean, these are all internal things. Um, this is, um, you know, sometimes I think people go, well, the parents must have pressured them. For a firstborn child, um, often it's all internally motivated, right? Like yeah, I'm going right. to go do this. I've got to prove something. And um, yeah, I was I was clear on what I wanted to do. And, and there was a very unhealthy version of this that I um, struggled with for many years where um, I was doing it to prove something to someone. And and it wasn't working, right? I, you know, talked to my dad and he seemed proud of me, but I was like, I still feel anxious. What's going on? You know, and I realized that I was, I was chasing after the wind and I had to get a, a bigger uh, vision for what I wanted to accomplish that went beyond I'm trying to prove something to someone. Hmm. Uh, the final question I want to uh, ask, which I think is right in your area of expertise is, you're one of our go-tos on how to establish a platform and how to get your ideas out in the market of ideas. And I'm going to have a link in the show notes to your website because you've got all kinds of tools to help us with that. What I'm interested in, Jeff, is um, as somebody who, who first started doing that last year, my, my work with chronic anxiety and systems theory, I've been teaching locally for eight or nine years. I've been living with it for 23 years, wow. but I finally put my little leaf in the stream of publishing and the podcast and just public life. Um, just over a year ago, my book came out six months ago and then the podcast came out just over a year ago. It's a very mm -hmm. long, long winded question, but mm -hmm. what has surprised me as a novice and a rookie is it feels like, um, the market of ideas, the level of saturation is significantly higher than it was even two or three years ago. 
and the uh, acceleration of saturation is also increasing. Right. What's your take on that? Uh, I recently rewatched um, Midnight in Paris, which uh, I love that movie. Um, and if you've not seen it, the, the basic plot, it's a Woody Allen film. Uh, the basic plot is this writer is in Paris and uh, one night he's hanging out outside at midnight and this carriage comes by and picks him up and takes him back into the 20s in Paris where he meets Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, Gertrude Stein, Pablo Picasso, and so on. And he's like, this is the golden age. This, like, If I could live at any time in history, I would live in 20s in the bit. I would live in the 20s in Paris in the rain. And, uh, and then when, when he's in the 20s, he falls in love with this French woman and they're hanging out one night at midnight in the twenties in Paris and the carriage comes and picks them up and takes them uh, back to uh, the, the late 1800s, the Belle Epoque. And, and she says, this is the golden age. You know, this is where you've mm -hmm. got all the uh, impressionists and post impressionists to lose Littrek and, you know, all these people uh, hanging out, talking about arts and, and, you know, Gauguin and all these people. And, um, and, and it's, it's this idea that there was a golden era. It's a fallacy, right? There's this idea that there was a golden era that was better then than it is now. And human beings love this idea, right? Uh, make America great again is, is that idea. And, uh, it's not true. Right. And, uh, but when did an idea have to be true for us to want to believe it? For sure, yeah. So uh, I I think you could very easily, uh, you do see this often with writers, you see them complaining about things that they've always complained about, right? Which is that the market is now saturated and yada, yada, yada. Is it more saturated than it was then? Uh, sure, I guess. You know, it's just, um, uh, it just is what it is. And I believe that every... This goes back to the thing that I, I take for granted. Like I just, um, I like problems. I believe that every problem creates an opportunity. And is it true that it was easier to succeed then than it is to succeed now? Sure, fine. Uh, but when I started blogging in 2010, you know, 2011, I felt like I was super late to the game. Right. So when people tell me, well, you got started early, I go, no, 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 no. Mm, yeah, that's my good. Friend, my friend Darren Rouse, who started ProBlogger in 2005, he got started early. When I talk to him, he goes, no, 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 no. You know, when so and so got onto, you know, Live Journal back in the late 90s, they, you know, and, and so it's like there's always an earlier time, a better time to mm. get started. Um, now, that doesn't mean that things aren't changing. Things are certainly changing in the publishing industry. Things are certainly changing online. There are, hundreds of millions of blogs um, instead of, uh, you know, millions of them, you know, just a, a decade before. Um, so things are changing. And when things change, um, I ask two questions. What has always been true, right? What are the principles, not the strategy? So most of what I do, which is very different, and often I felt insecure about this, and now I'm realizing it wasn't a bad idea. Most of what I do when I teach about platform is I teach principles, not strategies. A principle is almost always true. A strategy changes often, right? And a tool changes even more often. So for example, uh, email marketing is a strategy. It's a tool. Um, 
that can and will change, right? It's still an effective marketing strategy, but it's a tool. And 25 years from now, we may be using some other technology to replace email. We probably will be. Um, but the principle is permission, which is you need permission to communicate with an audience, to share your ideas with them. So I ask, what are the principles? What's, what have always, what's always been true? That will probably continue to be true. When I wrote a book called Real Artists Don't Starve, I had these 12 different rules, basically going from Michelangelo uh, all the way through the present. These are the things that creative professionals have done for the past 500 years that still work today. There were principles. They weren't like get an email list, right? That's an application of the principle. So I think you've always got to figure out the principle, right? Um, the other question is, what does this make possible, right? So if if blogging is done and dying and whatever, uh, what does this make possible, right? And what it makes possible is maybe podcasting or, um, for example, uh, Napster, right? So the music industry faced this. So people aren't buying, people don't need to buy CDs anymore because, um, or MP3s uh, because of streaming uh, and, and because they can download this stuff for free. So what does it make possible? Well, it makes possible uh, for us to push people because people are more aware of our music because they're getting it for free. So we can push people to live shows. And, um, you know, the, the industry, the concert industry is booming. It's never been better uh, because of that. And so every death creates an opportunity for a, a new birth, for a resurrection, if you will. And you just have to be looking for that. You have to be adaptable, I think. Um, if you're If you're trying to get back to the good old days, uh, you know, good luck with that, Grandpa. It's just that's just not how life works. That's not how the world works. Everything is always changing, and you need to adapt. Uh, I like what Jeff Bezos said about Amazon. He said, "We're stubborn on vision, but flexible on details." I think of my creative career as that. I have a vision of wanting to be a writer and share my ideas with the world. Um, how that works out in the details of things, I don't really care. I can do that uh, with a blog, with a book, with a speech, with a podcast. I like all of those modalities and, and mediums. Um, and I play with all of them and I'm looking for opportunities to see what emerges. And really all I'm trying to do is keep dancing, keep doing my dance, keep doing my thing and uh, not have to go get a real job. <laughs> Very good. Well, Jeff, if you're ready, let's move into our gauntlet of uh, anxiety questions. Bring on the gauntlet. Bring on the anxiety. Hey, let's do it. Let's make you anxious to wrap up the uh, episode. I was hoping. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of things, you know, anxiety is a broad topic and the nature of these questions is focused on chronic anxiety, okay. uh, you know, PTSD or, or yeah. generalized anxiety disorder. Those are out of my realm. Mm. Chronic anxiety is, I think, what most artists face, most leaders face. It's simply wow. um, what you believe you need to be okay that you don't really need. Uh, so for example, I've heard you say, I think it was in an interview that you have a tendency to overpromise and underdeliver, or you overcommit yourself and then you have to scramble. Yeah, and right. that, that may not be a current challenge of yours, but that would be the evidence of anxiety. People, people misunderstand and think anxiety is worry and fear, but right. it's actually everything that we think and do to try to get something that we think we need that we don't really need. So with that really long-winded intro, wow. are you able to name something that you believe you need that you don't actually need to be okay? I think that I need to be busy. 
so I will make a list of, I, I literally did this, it's not an exaggeration. Um, I made a list of 15 things to do the other day. And then as I'm making the list, I, th I thought, well, what about this? And what about this? And it'd be nice to do that. And what about this? And, and I ended up with a list of like 27 things. <laughs> and by the end of the day, I'd gotten 11 things done. And I felt a little bit disappointed. Um, and there is this nervous energy that I feel when I'm writing out the list. I'm excited to do all these things. And yet I know that I'm not going to accomplish all of them. Um, but I feel like I've got to stay busy, um, that I can't just sit still. Now, I've, through the practice of meditation, going for walks, I've, I've calmed down quite a bit. Um, I can be still, but there's still just kind of a, def like my default is do something. And it could be anything. You know, if I'm at home with the family um, and, and there's dishes in the sink, instead of sitting down with my kids while they eat dinner, I'll, I'll be tempted to want to go wash the dishes or pick up or just like do things. Uh, I remember uh, one time talking with my wife and we were talking. She goes, you're not listening to me. I said, what are you talking about? And I was like listening to her, but I was so nervous. I, I didn't realize this was a consciousness, but I felt a little, little bit of anxiety as, mm -hmm. as I became more aware of it. And, and I had to do something with that energy because we were talking about something serious. I can't remember what. And so I was cleaning the kitchen while she was talking to me, wiping something down, putting something away. I'm listening. I'm listening. But it was like, I've got to do something. I've got to do something with this energy. And so activity for me ha has been a means of dealing with the anxiety. And the really scary part is uh, uh, I've been really successful with that, right? Because I've always felt a little bit of anxiety, I'll do lots of things. And if I do lots of things, some of them will work. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, and you actually mentioned something that leads to the next question is I, I believe the best way to begin understanding chronic anxiety is to notice where it shows up physiologically. Mm -hmm. And the options are a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening gut. Yeah. W would you be able to name where anxiety begins for you? Um, yes, all those things sound true to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I do feel like, I mean, in addition to that, uh, I, 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 I struggle to nap because when I lie down, I'm thinking about a bunch of things hmm. and I can't stop thinking, but I go so hard during the day that when I put my head on my pillow at night, I'm out, um, which is kind of, uh, interesting. So I can't rest during the day, but at the end of the day, I'm just out. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it's anxiety, stress, I suppose that's, you know, that's related, uh, but I feel it in my shoulders. <clears throat> I'm often, I'll, I'll be walking through the day and I'll be sort of have clenched shoulders and I'll become aware of it. And I'll go, why? Why don't I just let go of that? Oh, I can just let go of that. Yeah, that's good. Oh, or I'll hunched over a little bit. I'll kind of straighten my back and I'll go, what is that about? I have a friend who does body work and he says that that means that you don't feel supported and blah, 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 blah. All this woo-woo stuff that I think is true but struggle to believe applies to me. And Yeah, that's right. Uh, but yeah, I'll feel that. I'll just, I'll go, oh. Or I, I actually, I think the, the most notable way is breathing, shallow breath. Hmm. And I'll just stop and I'll, and I'll take a deep breath and I'll go, oh, I haven't done that for like a day, you know? Good, good. One of the gifts of this science called family systems theory is that it actually gives you tools to notice generational traits mm. that either you are holding or that have a hold on you. 
Mm. Uh, I call it family propaganda. It's things mm. that might be true, but you think they must be true all the time. Yeah. Um, wow. And so uh, oftentimes you can, you can go back through your family tree and you can start to notice generational traits through your family and they can be positive or negative. Would you be willing to name a family trait that's either um, helpful for you or a threat to your well-being? This could be physical... It's Mental. typically a belief. Like, uh, in, oh, in, belief. Uh, I'll give you an example from my life. I, I did a genogram, which is a family tree that mm. is uh, connected with emotional relationships. Yeah. And it was the first time in my life that I realized that cusses, that's my last name, cuss, <laughs> cusses actually don't always know the answer. And for uh-huh. generations in my family, we are very certain about ourselves. And it's part of our charm, but it's also, as you might imagine, extremely obnoxious to people. But it wasn't until I did a genogram, uh, I was 24 as a chaplain when I did mine, that I even understood that that wasn't just a given. And uh-huh. so I was in the belief of the grip of that belief and, and had to had to repent of it, I guess. And then for me, the positive threat is we, we have some incredible resilience that has served me well, uh, that's been passed down generation to generation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I would love to do that. I, I'm not quite sure, but I'll take a, a guess. Um, a an early belief that I had that I think extends definitely to my father, my mother, my grandparents is, uh, and I, I remember picking it up very clearly at about age six. And the phrase was, there will never be enough. Mm, there you go. And I remember picking that up when I was six. My parents um, had just gotten a fight or something. And whenever my mom and dad would get in a fight, my mom would often take me somewhere and buy me something. Hmm. And she took me to McDonald's and she said, what do you want for lunch? And I said, we can't afford it. And she was, I remember her being super surprised by it, you know? Uh, And since then I have always kind of thought there'll never be enough. So you've got to, you've got to protect what you have and strive for more. And my dad um, has always been a dreamer, always had, you know, some new thing. My parents always talked about moving here, going there, doing that, and and often wouldn't do those things. I mean, you know, I, I watched my dad at, gosh, 48 years old, move his family from Northern Illinois to Northern Alabama, chase a dream, start a restaurant. I mean, I saw him do it. It was really inspiring. Um, uh, and then his father, you know, moved his family across country for uh for a job and um and so i think the positive part of that is is i come from a long lineage of dreamers it seems yeah that's right um and and the negative is obviously that'll never be enough so you could live in this constant state of ingratitude and anxiety and fear of losing what you have oh it's great jeff like i'm very aware with the with the gauntlet that it's pretty difficult for a guest to be introduced to a concept and then immediately asked to share about it. Yeah, yeah. You nailed it. That that's oh, exactly thanks. an example. Um, yeah, that's cool. great. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, another thing family systems offers us is it teaches us how to pay attention to anxiety spreading in a group. And the theory is mm. that it's always contagious. Yeah. Uh, and interesting. Yeah. Oftentimes the most anxious person in the room has the most power. Wow. Um, have you ever seen that or does that bring a story to mind that you'd like to share? Yeah. Yeah. I've seen it many times. Um, I think I see it with our kids. Um, when I'm, 
uh, when I'm feeling nervous, um, and, and not even realizing it, you know, but I'm just kind of hyped up. I'll, I'll come home and I'll bring that energy home and, and the kids will start acting up and I'll, I'll realize that they're sort of mirroring my behavior. You know, they're, 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 um, not listening or, uh, messing around at the dinner, dinner table or whatever. And it actually reminds me of this thing that I'm learning about our dog, uh, which is, uh, you know, he, he becomes very aggressive around other dogs when he's on a leash. When he's not on a leash, he's very nice. When he's on a leash, he becomes very aggressive. Hmm. Well, I've noticed that part of that is because when we walk towards another dog, I immediately stiffen the leash. Mm. Yeah, good. And so what I've been experimenting with is actually loosening the leash, even walking over to the dog, letting him, you know, sniff, sniff the dog's behind or whatever. And, um, and sometimes just like, come on, let's go, you know, not even be, be a big deal. I'll sort of like tug it and then I'll let it loose. I'll tug it and then I'll let it loose. Like, all right, let's go. But I'm not like, like constant tension. So it doesn't, it's not, um, stressing him out, you know, and, and that's working really well. And I was like, man, how many, it was a metaphor. How many situations in my life am I showing up tense and it's creating tension around everybody else? And, and I certainly see with the kids. You are a gifted problem solver. There's a there's a very technical term in systems theory called second order change, and it's mm. it's the ability to notice uh, a, a pattern that's re- recurring and predictable, like you and your dog and your leash. And then it's the second step is to notice how you are complicit in the problem, and then that's yeah. how you break the pattern. That you just laid that out beautifully for us. What uh-huh. and. Anyway, for a rookie, you're, you're like got a, a <laughs> systems uh, perspective that's pretty cool. Oh, I love it. Thanks. All right. Last question. Okay. Uh, I think anxiety is most powerfully displaced by laughter and oh. I think more profoundly by unconditional love. Mm. So when in your life uh, do you feel most fully loved? Um. So there was, I can think of a specific time. There was a moment. I mean, lots of moments, of course. Um, maybe not, of course. <laughs> uh, but um, I've had lots of moments like that. But there, when I think of that term, there's a, there's a time that I think of. And it was, um, I was in college and I was dating this girl that was much older than me. And I had a week off from work and I wanted to go see my girlfriend, this girl that I was dating. And I asked my parents, she was much older um, her parents were out of town for the week. She wanted me to come stay at her house. And my parents were like, I'm not sure about this. I was always, you know, a good kid. Um, they didn't like the idea that I would be staying with this woman alone by myself. It was just not something that I would have done. And I got really mad. And I think I even like cried, you know, very petulant. And like, you won't let me do anything. And I was asking to borrow their vehicle. I didn't have a car at the time. And um, my dad said something to me that I, you know, um, he'd never said before. He said, I've never, he's, I've always trusted you and I've never questioned, um, your, I don't know if he said integrity, um, but maybe he said, I've never questioned your integrity until now. Um, he said, so, you know, do what you want, but you know, we, we don't agree with this. And, um, and I felt awful. And I told him, you know, hey, I'm not going to go, you know, sorry. I, 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 um, you know, sorry, I was so demanding about it, et cetera. And then uh, he left and came back and um, gave me the keys. And I went into the 
the, uh, I got into his truck and it, it was, it was the, the gas tank was full and there was my favorite mountain, my favorite drink, which was Mountain Dew Code Red at the time, a bunch of Slim Jims and snacks that I liked. It was like, you know, everything that I wanted. And, you know, he said, have a good trip. Um, and yeah, I trust you, you know, go, go do whatever you think is, is best. And in that moment, you know, I, I felt loved unconditionally. Mm. I just had this fight with my parents. Um, and, you know, love to me looks like a, a full tank of gas filled with your, you know, favorite, uh, you know, car, uh, road trip foods. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that unconditional love feels like when you are in the wrong, which is how I felt regard who, I mean, it doesn't matter what you think about any of, of that. I was doing something that I knew my parents would disagree with and I was mad that they wouldn't let me do it. And, um, and so I felt like I was in the wrong and I think unconditional love is you were in the wrong and the relationship is still whole. It is still intact. Um, and I feel most loved when I am clearly in the wrong and I'm still loved for who I am, not what I've done or haven't done. Yeah. Jeff, that's a, yeah, that's a beautiful example. You have sailed through the gauntlet. Thank you. Um, thanks for your time. And, and thanks for sharing so much with us about what really is your field of expertise. Uh, we'll, we'll have, as I said before, links in the show notes to your website and your books. Um, mm. But yeah, I really appreciate your time today, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure, Steve. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.